Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 103, Psalm 103. We have come to the end of our summer series through the Psalms. I don't know if anybody ever knew what the title of this series was. Songs that stir the soul. Songs from God written by his people that stir our souls, that cause us to be awakened in our affections, that give us understanding of who God is and It has been such a joy to see the the many sides of life through these psalms. We've seen lament. We've seen just praise and utter joy. We've seen happy. We've seen sad. We have seen distraught. Even last week we saw imprecatory psalms where people are praying that the wicked would be judged. But when you think of the psalms, even though we debunked this myth, right? Uh, When we think about the psalms, we think happy, peppy, praise. And we debunk that by saying that the Psalms, the book of Psalms, is actually two-thirds lament and sorrow and grief and one-third praise. But since we often think of praise and singing and joy, I figured it would be good to end with a psalm that just focuses on praise and focuses our hearts on God's goodness and his grace towards us. Psalm 103 is a psalm that has been set to music so many different times. I counted 13 hymns um, just off the top of my head that are written from Psalm 103. Uh, You know many of them. Uh, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. You know that one. Uh, Praise my soul, the King of heaven. To his feet thy tribute bring. You know that song. A beautiful song. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. That's straight from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Uh, An an old um, praise chorus. You guys remember that one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Why? He has done great things. He has done great things. That's all through this. He has done great things. So bless his holy name. A song that we sing often, praise, the, praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. We'll see that at the end of this psalm as well. O oh, my soul, praise him, for he is thy health and salvation. I think it would be good if we sang that song at the end of our time together. This, song, this psalm is so perfectly written that we can just set it to music and sing. It's all about the goodness of God and what he has done, who he is and what he has done. A little background information on Psalm 103, very easy. The superscription, it's a psalm of David. David wrote it and we don't know anything else. A lot of people try to give a background to it because when people have too much time on their hands and not enough information about the background, they decide I'm going to fit it into some historical setting. And they try. Most people would say that this is a psalm that was written somewhere after David's sin with Bathsheba. And I just don't know if I agree with that because there are psalms that are specifically tailored to that and say in the superscription after Nathan confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba. Um, They get that from the section in here about God's loving kindness and compassion and um, not rewarding our iniquities uh, or rewarding us according to our iniquities as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love towards us. Uh, verse uh, 12, familiar verse, as far as the east is from the west, he's removed our transgressions from us. So some people say it's all about forgiveness. It's not all about forgiveness. That's a huge point of the psalm. But I don't think this is about 
David's sin with Bathsheba. Very simply, I think we talk often about interpreting passages. And we ask the question, what would David, who wrote this, think about what I think about what David thinks? What is David thinking here? Let's get inside his head and figure out why he's writing this. And then let's ask, what would David think about what I think about what he thinks here? Honestly, this psalm is just about David overflowing with praise for two things, who God is and what he has done. It's all about who God is and what he has done. And that's the psalm. No more background information is needed. David just is overflowing with praise for who God is and for what he has done. In fact, there are 17 things specifically that David praises God for in 22 verses. And we're going to look at all of them very quickly. But there are 17 things that David praises God for. There's many different ways to outline this text. One of the favorite ways to outline this text is looking at David um, preaching to his soul and in a very individual sense and then moving more corporately to all of Israel and then moving universally to bless the Lord, you his angels, bless the Lord, you his hosts who serve him all creation towards the end of the psalm. And it, it works. I understand some places it doesn't fit that way. So for our outline this morning, this is what we're going to do. We are going to look at verses 1 and 2, which I think are David's introduction. It's, it's his, these verses are his introduction to the psalm. And then we will take verses 3 through 22 as the text that David preaches. Verses 1 and 2 are really the introduction of David preaching to his soul. And then verses 3 through 22 are the 17 reasons why David has to praise. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, these 17 reasons. But before we do, we need to see David preaching to his own soul, preaching that God alone is worthy of our praise. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. We're going to spend some time in verses 1 and 2, so don't worry. The proportion is going to be a lot on verses 1 and 2, and then we'll just move on through the next verses uh, very quickly at a rapid pace. We won't be able to spend time on everything. But we need to understand his introduction here. What is he doing when he says, bless the Lord? What does it mean to bless the Lord? When we think of blessing, we think of the greater giving to the lesser, right? We think of, I have something that I can offer to somebody who doesn't have something. So I'm greater, I can give it to somebody who doesn't have, the greater to the lesser. But how can we, the lesser, bless the greater? How can we bless God? What does this word mean? The word bless is used over 100 times in the book of Psalms. And it's very interesting, actually, the words that are used in the book of Psalms for praising God. Uh, we would, what, what's, what's the word that we would normally say when we think of singing songs to God? I think of worship, right? Worship. Probably second would be praise. But did you know that the word worship is used only 14 times in the book of Psalms? It's only used 14 times, worship. The reason why is because there are far more active words that are used to speak of worshiping the Lord. Worship is ascribing worth, but the psalmist actually uses that phrase, ascribe to his name, more times than he uses the word worship. There are active words for praising God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's a command. Praise the Lord. Bless is one of these active words. Uh, the word bless at its Hebrew root is actually the word for knee. You say, okay, how does... 
need translate to singing? What does that mean? Here's what it means. It describes a posture. Blessing the Lord is falling to our knees in utter humility before him and worshiping him. It's worshiping him. But it isn't about literal kneeling. You don't have to literally be kneeling. And we know that David is not thinking about literally kneeling before the Lord in these verses. Why do we know it? Because he's not preaching to his body. He's preaching to his soul and his soul can't kneel. So what is he asking his soul to do? What does bless mean? It means this, to come before the Lord with humility and worship him in awe. To come before the Lord with humility and worship him in awe. You cannot be prideful and worship the Lord. You cannot come before him and stand on your own with autonomy and say, I'm good enough, I'm self-sufficient, I'm okay in and of myself. C.S. Lewis says it this way, if you are in your own heart prideful, you will never be able to worship the Lord. And that's where bless comes from. The idea is blessing God by coming before him in humility. Your soul's posture is one of bowing low before God. Bless the Lord. One other author says it this way, the beginning of human pride is simply a thoughtlessness of God. Just saying, you know what, I don't need him right now. I'm okay to survive on my own. I can take my own breath. I don't need him to give me breath. My heart can beat without him making it beat. Thoughtlessness of God. That's why David will say, forget none of his benefits. Don't forget that without him, I would be dead. Don't forget that without him, I would not have life. I would not have life in the physical here, in the temporal. I would not have life eternal in the next life. I think Paul says this so well in Acts chapter 17. You don't have to turn there, but you can write it down. Acts 17, verses 24 through 25. You remember Paul uh, on Mars Hill speaking to all of the philosophers that had the idols to all of the gods, and they had one idol to an unknown God. And Paul says, I know that God that you don't know. And it says specifically this. He says, this is the God who made the world and all things in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need our help. In fact, he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He says it elsewhere in Colossians 1, that everything was made by him, for him, through him, to him, so that he would come to have preeminence in first place in everything. So blessing the Lord is very simply coming before him and admitting, without you I would be dead. And I praise you for the ways that you sustain me and keep me alive. I praise you for that. But notice who he's talking to. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's speaking to his own soul. This isn't instruction or teaching for others that we can gain that help from the way he's speaking to his own soul. But this is instruction to himself. And I think there's a crucial point we have to understand here. There are many times, in fact, more often than not, We don't feel like praising God, and we have to tell our souls to praise God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, meaning you're not really praising right now, and you need to praise. We looked at Psalm 42 where David says that. I'm not praising right now, and I need help to praise. I don't think he's there here because he's going to start praising the Lord and just spewing forth worship before him. So I don't think he's at a place where he's saying, I can't, I'm struggling to, please help me, and the the psalm ends. He starts by saying, Praise the Lord, my soul, and then his soul starts praising. Bless the Lord, my soul, and then his soul starts blessing. But it is crucial for us to be reminded that 
I think we have a very romanticized view of worship. We have a very romanticized view of, you know, waking up in the morning with the sun shining into our bedroom and somehow the window was open last night and birds come in and wake us up and, you know, help us get dressed and start singing to us and, and you just can't help but sing with them, right? Um, I think we have an overly romanticized view of worship where we think it'll just happen. I'll just feel it one day. And as I feel it, I'll just start singing, you know, just spontaneous. And that happens. And praise the Lord, it happens. Uh, it happened last night when we were at this wedding. The sun just started playing tricks on our eyes with just going through the clouds and just beautiful sunsets. And I was sitting with my wife and with uh, Libby Herringshaw, and she took a picture and just said, thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your creation. This is amazing, and this is such a gift. Just spontaneous. So it can happen. But I think if we're honest, more often than not, it doesn't happen that way, right? More often than not, we are having to say, no, 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 we have to praise. We have to praise. That's why he's saying, soul, even if you don't feel like it, worship. Because the reality is if we wait until we feel like it to worship the Lord, we're not going to be doing a lot of worshiping, right? If we wait to feel like it, we're going to be waiting for a long time. I think that Job chapter 1 is so helpful in this. Everything's taken away. You remember Job just loses everything. All of his kids, all of his um, livelihood, his cattle, his fields, um, everything. He loses his house. He loses his friends. He loses it all. And then he says this, may the Lord be praised. May the Lord be praised. Bless the Lord. I don't think he felt like praising. I don't think as he hears from his servant that all of his kids have been killed, that he feels, this is a good time. Praise the Lord. He has to preach to his soul. Again, I don't know if David is in that place here. I don't think he's in a dark place saying, bless the Lord, even though you're struggling. But I think it's worth noting and being reminded of that. So he says, bless the Lord, worship him in humility. Oh, my soul, he's speaking to himself. And then he says, all that is within me, bless his holy name. All that is within me. So we could say with bless the Lord, that we have to worship the Lord in humility. And we could say with, oh, my soul, we have to worship the Lord with some sense of intentionality, right? You have to preach and worship God now. Now's the time to worship him and bless his name. All that is within me. This is just really the aspect of sincerity. We have to worship the Lord with sincerity. Every aspect of who you are has to be involved in worshiping God. How do you tell the difference between being insincere and sincere in your worship, in your praise, in your thanksgiving? Let's say it that way. How can you tell you are sincerely thankful versus being insincerely thankful? Can I give you just a helpful illustration? I hope you find this helpful. Um, waiters and waitresses, I think, can help us with this. They know what sincere thankfulness is versus insincere thankfulness, right? They're waiting upon you. You go to Chili's and you get two for 20 meal and you're hanging out and you're having a blast. And every time they bring you something, you say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much. Anything else you need? No, thank you. Thank you so much. You say, well, I've been sincere in thanking them, right? I don't know if they will feel the sincerity of your thankfulness until you get that little bill and there's a line that says gratuity, right? Gratitude. How much, how much are you really thankful? So we've got lip service and then we've got, okay, this will hurt. 
right? This will hurt me to be able to thank you. But, but I think in that moment, all the waiters and waitresses are, are hoping that all that is within you is being thankful with them, right? Please thank me. David says this elsewhere in the Psalms, in Psalm 116, verses 12 through 13. He says, I will praise you with my lips and I will pay my vow to you. I will be sincere, all of me, whether it's money, whether it's tithing, whether it's offering, whether it's service. You remember First, uh, First Chronicles 21, when David buys the field, um, there's a threshing floor and somebody offers to just give it to him. Here you go. You can have this. You can set up the temple here. You can have a place of worship here. Just go ahead and take it. You're the king. Have it. Have fun. I just want to give it to you as a gift. And David says, no, because if this is going to be used for God's purposes, it must cost me something. I can't just say, oh, thanks, and and freely, um, without any cost to myself or sincerity to myself, worship the Lord. So we need to be humble. We need to be intentional. We need to be sincere, blessing his holy name, his character, who he is. And then verse 2, he says it again, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. I guess we could say this, um, we need to be humble, intentional, sincere, and specific in the way that we worship the Lord. We need to be specific. Don't forget any of his benefits. You say, well, I could never name all of his benefits. And I would just say, try, try, start naming them, rehearsing them. David's going to do that for us, and we're going to do that with him. But the reality is there, there are times when I think we just say, thanks, God, and we don't give any specificity to what we're thankful for. It's like I'll be at home and Chelsea will just be running around and run into me and she'll just say, thank you, daddy. And I didn't do anything. And for what, Chelsea? And she just doesn't know. She just said, thank you. So I think often we to our heavenly father do the same thing. It's just, oh, thanks. I don't think that I ever imagined that I would give this as a sermon illustration. But I think we can take our cue here from Fräulein Maria, if you would. Because her specificity in thankfulness and gratefulness for things is just ridiculous, right? I would say, I'm thankful for the rain. And I will be when it comes because we're in a drought. But she says, no, 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 that's not enough. I'm thankful for raindrops on roses, right? I'm just, can we just say rain? No, that's not specific enough. I'm thankful for cats. I'm actually a dog person myself, but no, no, no whiskers on baby cats, on kittens. All the things that she describes. We need to do the same thing with God. Thank you for specifics of how God has blessed us and the things that we are truly thankful for. Since we're already in Germany in our minds, Martin Luther said it this way, when we become proficient at being thankful for the small things, We prepare our hearts to be capable for being thankful for the profound. We need to become very good at being thankful for all of the little things that God gives to us. So, verses 1 and 2, worship is about blessing the Lord in humility, responding to who He is and the things He has done. Bless His holy name, that's who He is. Bless Him for all of His benefits. Don't forget His benefits, that's what He has done. And that's what worship is. Thanking God for who he is and for what he has done. Who he is, what he has done. Who he is, what he has done. So, 
With that as our intro, now let's go through these 17 reasons. Some of them are who he is. Some of them are what he has done that David gives us to be thankful for and to bless the Lord. Verse 3, number 1, he pardons all of your iniquities. He pardons all of your iniquities. And the reality is, if we have nothing else in the psalm, if that's all we have, we have more than enough to be thankful for because we have been pardoned. We have been set free from the debt that we owe because of our sin. We deserve death. We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. And God has said, I will pour that wrath upon my son. He is a perfect sinless substitute. He takes the wrath. He takes the penalty so that you can go free. He pardons all your iniquities. Number two, he heals all of your diseases. He heals all of your diseases. This is also in verse three. This is, if I can say it this way, he delivers you from your sickbed. Okay, we're going to say it that way. It's deliverance. The idea is deliverance because you know the problems that can come from this passage, right? You know them. You can hear them. There's a prosperity gospel in this verse that would say, if you just had enough faith, if you just believe, just flip on the TV, turn to TVN, and you will see this gospel being preached. If you believe in God with enough faith, with enough belief and trust, you will never be sick again. What do we do with those people who say that, that, that die? Like, there is going to be one disease, ultimately, that you're not healed from, right? There's going to be one thing that takes you out. So what do they do with that? What do they do with Paul, with the thorn in the flesh, that he prays, God, would you take this away? A lot of people think that was a physical disease or illness or difficulty. God, take it away. Please remove it. Please remove it. Oh, did he not have enough faith? And God said, sorry, I'm not going to remove it. What about John 9, the man born blind? Disciples and Pharisees, everybody's asking, so who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're looking for causality, right? Something had to have happened that this man was born blind. Somebody did something wrong, and if only he would obey and bless the Lord, he'd be forgiven. No, no, no. Jesus says it's not this man's sin or his parents' sin. It's no one's sin. It's for the glory of God. We need a theology that says our sickness is for the glory of God. God gives us sickness for his glory. Think of Job. Think of Fanny Crosby, who lost her eyesight because of a doctor who didn't know what he was doing. And because of that loss of eyesight, she wrote over a thousand hymns, and many of them were laced with that understanding of spiritual sight being so much better than any physical sight you could ever have. Countless others fall into the same category, but ultimately think of Jesus. This is what I don't understand when I interact with people who believe in a prosperity gospel. Why can you believe in a prosperity gospel when you have a Savior who was murdered on a cross? There wasn't much prosperity with what he went through. His beard being plucked out, his face being beaten beyond recognition. What about when he was starving in the wilderness for 40 days? That's not much prosperity. I think Jim Boyce is helpful in this. He says this, this verse, healed, heals all of your diseases, has played an important but unwarranted role in some systems of theology that stress what is called healing in the atonement, meaning that if we have been saved from sin by Christ, we have also been healed 
or we have the right to be healed of any physical affliction as well. This is bad theology because it simply is not true that those who have been forgiven for sin are spared or have a right to be spared all diseases. Believers do get sick, and many passages teach that God has his purposes in these sicknesses. So, what is this verse saying? Is it specifically referring to physical sickness? It could be, but I think that it's helpful to see the thanksgiving before and after and to understand what it's really speaking of. He pardons all of your iniquities, and then verse 4, he redeems your life from the pit. And sandwiched in there is he heals all of your diseases. What, what's the theme of those three things, those three specific uh, events that are taking place? It's, in a word, deliverance. He delivers you from the penalty of sin. He delivers you from sickness or disease. And he delivers you from the pit. So we're praising God for who he is, the deliverer, and for what he has done. He's delivered us. So though it could speak to the, God is the one who does heal sickness, I don't think that it's ultimately speaking of that. It's ultimately speaking of the fact that he will preserve your life till the end. And specifically in verse 4, and this is number 3 in our outline, number 3, he redeems your life from the pit. This is just buying you out, redeem. Redemption is to buy you out of a situation where you cannot live and you cannot survive. This text is most likely referring to the deliverance from death, that God will give you eternal life, and he has provided that for you because of his resurrection power in Christ Jesus. The pit refers to death, and so the bottom line is that these three things that David is praising for are for the deliverance that God offers. God is a gracious and powerful deliverer in our lives. Number four. God crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. This is in verse 4. Loving kindness. He crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Loving kindness is that word hesed. It's a steadfast, covenant-keeping love. It's actually derived from a word that means bending or bowing or inclining oneself. So it's speaking of God condescending and bowing low and bending down towards us to pick us up and to love us and to hold us and to never let go of us. It's an everlasting love, and that is what becomes our glory. That is our crown. We glorify God when we say, I boast in the loving kindness that Jesus has given to me, that nothing can separate me from the love of God. Number five, God satisfies your years with good things, and because of this, your youth is renewed. This is in verse five. He satisfies your years. Literally, it's he satisfies your ornament. That's the literal Hebrew word. And all of our translations would probably be different. Satisfies, some of them say desires, some say mouth, some say life, some say glory. The whole point, as you can see, that everybody's trying to pick one specific aspect of what God is satisfying. The whole point is that he satisfies everything that you are. Every aspect of who you are is satisfied in God and by God. He satisfies you. Number six, he performs righteous deeds and judgments for the oppressed. He performs righteous deeds and judgments for the oppressed. This is in verse 6. And this is very simply making just what is unjust. Again, an aspect of deliverance. He delivers those who are oppressed. In verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. So not only does he satisfy your years and renews your strength, but he also delivers you from oppression. He delivers you. 
Verse 7 brings our seventh point. He makes his way known. He makes his way known. I love that David brings this to bear. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Think of all of the gods that David knew of. Think of Baal. Think of Molech. Think of all the pagan deities. What did you have to do to figure out what they wanted? It was a trial and error. We need rain. Let's start by killing the least important thing that we have. And we'll just kind of go up the totem pole. That's what they did with Molech. They just said, well, let's start by cutting down some trees. See if God will send us rain. See if the God of Molech will send us rain. Okay, we cut down trees. Didn't work. Uh, Let's see if we can sacrifice a couple fish. They came from the water, so let's ask for more water by killing fish. Doesn't work. Let's talk about horses, cattle. Let's talk about cows, pigs, sheep, goat, whatever. Ultimately, their answer was none of these work. And so they went to the most innocent thing that they could possibly go to. And they said, let's start throwing our babies into the fire and killing them. And maybe that will appease him. And they started murdering their innocent children um, simply because Molech never made his way known. Obviously because he can't, because he doesn't have a way, because he's not a god. So David says, thank you, God, that we aren't in a guessing game here. We aren't wondering, will this satisfy you? Will this please you? How am I supposed to live so that you are glorified in me? God has laid it out. He has spoken clearly. He doesn't have a speech impediment. And we know exactly what God desires of us. He has made his way known and his acts known to us. Verse 8, number 8, God is compassionate and gracious. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. Robert Davidson in his commentary on the book of, Acts, or book of Psalms says it this way, we may find it difficult not to place limits on our acts of compassion, but God doesn't. We may find it impossible to wipe the slate clean to forgive when others have offended us, but God doesn't. You realize God, it's not impossible for God to say, slate is clean. No, I will never, I'll never bring that back up. He is compassionate and gracious. He loves us with a love that we couldn't fully comprehend because we can't live it out with others in its completeness. Number nine, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. This is also in verse eight. Instead of being quick to anger, he is slow to anger. If he were quick to anger or literally quick to punish us, we'd all be dead right now. If we were to get what we deserve, we would be dead right now. But he's slow to his anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. The idea of abounding is overflowing. You can't contain it. It's just flowing forth, pouring out. This happened to me last night. A big old thing of iced tea in a huge jug of uh, container. And there's this little thing that you turn. To, you, you have to screw this thing so the, the iced tea comes out. I was really thirsty. And so I'm like, come on, let's go. And um, I was screw, unscrewing, unscrewing. Nothing was coming out. Well, what's going on here? And then all of a sudden, boop, the thing just popped right off. Iced tea, like instant glass full of iced tea. And then um, I just went, help, someone, help, because it would not stop. So I got another glass and another glass. 
And as I was doing that, two people came by and said, oh, are these to take? Thank you so much. I was like, yeah, they're there to take. Here we go. Somebody came by and just stuck their finger in the thing and said, I'll just take it back. We looked everywhere for the little thing and couldn't find it anywhere. And then I just sat back down after like 10 minutes. You know what? I'm just going to sit down. And I started drinking my iced tea and looked and went, oh, here's the little thing. It popped off into my glass. But that was abounding with iced tea. That was overflowing, and I could not stop it. No matter what I was doing, help, help. Even when the guy stuck his finger in, it was still leaking around. Help. God, in his character, just overflows. He oozes. You cannot stop or contain the love that he has for you. You can't. That's a reason to praise him. Number 10, verse 9. He does not always strive with us nor will he keep his anger forever. It's really kind of a twofold understanding of this. Number one is that there will come a day when his wrath will come, and he will not hold it back. And uh, there is reason to praise the Lord. We could call that justice. We're praising God for his justice. But I really think in context here, if we're saying the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and he will not always strive, nor will he keep his anger forever, I think the idea of this verse as he continues in not dealing with us according to our sins, not rewarding us according to our iniquities, it would be very interesting if he just threw in there this idea of pure, just just wrath. So I think there's kind of a a double issue going on here in verse 9 when he says he will not always strive with us is put in there. It's it's implanted in there. Um, He will not always... um, strive in um, doing good and loving and taking care of. Um, He will not keep forever. Uh, What is he talking about? What is David asking? As he says, he's compassionate, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in loving kindness. I think the wording that he's using here, and it's a very difficult verse to fully understand, but it's it's dealing with patience. Look at the patience that he's had, the long-suffering and the patience that he's had, There will come a day when that is gone, but for now it's intact. And so look and praise the Lord for the patience that he holds on to for now for us. I think that's the emphasis. Yes, there's justice and wrath to come and judgment, but for now, look at what's happening and the patience that he's holding back. Look at how he is gracious and patient with us. Number 11, he deals mercifully with us. This is in verse 10. He deals mercifully with us. Uh, Verse 10 says he has not dealt with us according to our sins. He has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. This verse is just a marvelous explanation of what God's grace is all about. We cannot earn forgiveness for our sins. It is a gift. We are not rewarded according to our iniquities, nor are we rewarded according to our good works. We cannot earn salvation because of goodness in us. And so David says very clearly, if our sins were dealt with according to how they should be dealt with, we would all go to hell. But that's why Jesus was punished. Jesus suffered hell on the cross so that we would never have to. So he deals mercifully with us. As sinners, obviously we all deserve death. Romans 6.23, the wages of our sin is death. But God in his grace deals mercifully. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He lavishes grace upon us. Number 12, he has great loving kindness for those who fear him. This is in verse 11. And I love the way that David is very specific to say that it's not just 
love going to everybody with an unqualified sense of just, I forgive everyone, love everyone. We'd call that universalism, right? That everyone is saved. No one has to repent, submit. Um, Everyone just gets the love of God and everyone's saved. He says these amazing truths, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, verse 11, is his loving kindness. But he specifically says it's towards those who fear him. There is a condition to receiving this loving kindness. In fact, we'll find that there are three requirements for us to experience the love of God forever. Number one, we see the fear of the Lord in verse 11. Number two, we'll see keeping the covenant that God has given to us in verse 18. And number three, we will see in verse 18, we have to keep his commandments. If we are to understand and have this love pouring to us, giving Uh, being given to us. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? This is the qualification. So we have to understand what it means to fear God. What does it mean to fear him? It means that God in your mind and in your heart is so powerful, so holy, so awesome that you would not dare to run away from him and you would not dare to sin against him. Jerry Bridges has an immensely helpful book that I would just recommend to all of you. It's called The Joy of Fearing God. And half of the book is about how we develop fear, true fear of God. And it's all about his attributes. It's who God is, and it's what he has done. And as we stare at who he is and what he's done, we become very small. We we begin to see ourselves rightly. We say, man, I'm really small. I'm very insignificant. And then Jerry Bridges says, now that we know what it means to stand in awe of God, we can practically live out the fear of God. Fear is used, this word is used 330 times in the Old Testament, and it's always dealing with awe produced when a person is before God. It's always dealing with standing in awe, an uneasiness of heart, standing before God. John Bunyan said this, Godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God to the soul. Where there is no sense of hope of the kindness and mercy of God by Jesus Christ, There can be none of this dear, but rather wrath and despair, which produces a fear that is devilish. But godly fear flows from a sense of hope, of mercy from God by Jesus Christ. And I think that's why David has started by saying, look at the mercy that we have in Jesus Christ. Look at the mercy that we have being given to us by God and fear him because we have no reason to have that mercy. Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4 say this, If you, O Lord, kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could stand? No one could. But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Forgiveness given to us brings fear to us. Because why? Why has he forgiven us? We stand in awe that someone would have such a great love for us. John Calvin says it this way, man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And that's when we find what true fear is, is standing in awe of God. So he hasn't rewarded us according to our iniquities as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And then verse 12 We see number 13 of the 17 reasons that David gives to praise God. Number 13, God removes our sin completely. He removes our sin completely. And it's a beautiful poetic way to describe it. 
as far as the east is from the west, and that's an infinite distance because it just keeps going, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And then he qualifies it in really point number 14, another aspect of who God is that David praises God for, namely fatherly compassion. Number 14, fatherly compassion. He removes our sin completely, and he, and he does it in an amazing way. Just as, verse 13, a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. If we're honest, forgiveness is incredibly hard to do. If we're really honest, we don't do it well. Um, we normally say, yes, I forgive you. Here's the, here's the offense. Forgiveness is throwing the offense away. I'm never going to bring it up again. But I think more often than, than not, we say, you know, here, I, I forgive you, Tim, for what you did here. I'll throw it away. Great hug. He, he walks away, and I go over, and I pick it up, and I stick it in my back pocket, just if I need it, just in case he does something to me, and I can bring it back up. God doesn't do that. God removes it as far as the east is from the west. He remembers our sin no more. And this is what I love about verse 13. We find it very hard to forgive people around us especially adults around us. But I think the people that we find easiest to forgive are our children. And he says, just as a father has compassion on his children, my daughter just constantly does things that she doesn't even know she's doing. Just, she sees me, I'll be reading, and I'll be underlining things, so she says, I want to do the same thing. But her underlining is not underlining. It's just scribble and maybe rip a page out and and, oh, no, Chelsea, discipline comes. She says she's sorry and says, Daddy, do you forgive me? And I say, absolutely. And I'm never going to hold that, you know, when she's 17, hey, you ripped the page out of my book. Like, forgiveness. I can't be embittered towards her. I love her. And it's not just because she's adorable and her voice is incredibly cute. But it's also because... There's a reality where I, I know that she didn't mean some of the things that she does. She's a toddler. I think that's another analogy that David brings here. A father has compassion on his children to those who fear him. Why? Because he knows our frame. He knows our frame. He knows we're toddlers in the grand scheme of things. We like to feel like we're adults and we've got it all together. But he knows we're nothing. He knows that. So he's compassionate upon us. He's mindful that we are but dust. That would really be point number 15. David is so grateful and thankful that he is mindful of who we are. He knows us intimately. And then he goes on to talk about that in verse 15. As for a man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So he flourishes when the wind has passed over. It's no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his precepts or keep his commandments so he knows us intimately that's number 15 and number 16 god is everlasting in nature contrasted to who we are we are just dust we just fade away but god is everlasting in nature so david just overflows with this praise in verse 19, we see the last, the 17th and final reason that David gives to praise and bless the Lord. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules 
overall. We can just say it this way. We should bless the Lord because he is sovereign in nature. He is sovereign with power and authority. He is sovereign in who he is and in what he does. He is sovereign in his nature and has power and authority. John Piper says it this way, the biblical categories of God's sovereignty lie like landmines in the pages of the Bible, just waiting for someone to seriously open the book. God's in control of every aspect of our lives. And then he says this, these landmines do not kill, but they do explode trivial notions of the almighty God. Who he is and what he does, how he acts, blow up in our minds. And so we cannot be trivial in the way that we think about God. We have awe and fear and reverence before him. And then the response to all of it in verses 20 through 22. Bless the Lord, you as angels. Now everybody needs to praise God. His soul was praising him. Israel was praising him. Now everybody needs to praise. Bless the Lord, you as angels. Bless him, you who are mighty in strength, who perform his word, who obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why? For who he is and what he has done. He is a merciful deliverer. He is a compassionate father. He has abounding, overflowing, loving kindness to us. He is sovereign. He is everlasting. And the list can go on and on and on. So we are to bless the Lord. We've been charged. We are works of God's hands in verse 22. So we've been charged by David to bless the Lord, to praise him, to speak well of his greatness. The reality is we can look to so many things in this world that bring us fear or are chaotic and we struggle and we start complaining and we say, I wish this was different and I wish this was another way and I wish something changed here. And David says, do the exact opposite. Look around for all the ways that you've been blessed. That's another hymn, Count, count Your Many Blessings. That was written from here. Just name them one by one. List them out. And you'll see what God has done. Matthew Henry says, Be not afraid of saying too much in the praises of God. All the danger is of saying too little. So I think it would be helpful if we responded the way that David is asking us to respond. He gave us 17 reasons to bless the Lord, and we're going to sing of a few others that we can bless the Lord for. We need to respond rightly and appropriately, and I think we would do well to sing songs that come straight from this passage. We have 17 reasons that we looked at, and we can look at so many more in the scriptures. But every time we open our mouths to sing praise to God, we are blessing the Lord for who he is, for what he has done on our behalf. Father, we thank you so much for this series that we were able to go through through the Psalms. We thank you for your word that is so precious and gives us such a rich Um, transparent understanding of the human condition, of the ways that we struggle, of the ways that we go through trials and suffer. And God, we praise you for the ways that we have learned to respond. And now, God, we want to respond. We want to respond rightly. As we sing, I pray that you would be glorified as we recount these 17 ways that David is just overflowing with praise and humility. May we be intentional as he is. May we be specific as he is. May we be sincere. All that is within us, 
praise you. And may we be humble in fear and reverence and awe before you as we sing. We pray it in your name. Amen.